Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. You know, it's easy to forget that it's been only a couple of weeks since Donald Trump told a conservative Jewish group that uh, evangelical Christians are loyal to Israel and the Jews, but he accused American Jews of insufficient support of the Jewish state. He said uh, rather abruptly uh, to the Republican Jewish Coalition in Las Vegas that the evangelicals are really on our side, but U.S. Jews better get their act together and appreciate what he's done before it's too late, drawing on the infamous dual loyalty anti-Semitic canard. I mean, the historic importance of Israel in American politics has always been astonishing by any calculation, whether that's, you know, measured through the foreign aid we send over, the military support, the attention paid to their political discourse and debate, or the vetoes America has given in the UN. Our next guest has said, America's generosity to Israel is literally unparalleled, not only in US history, but in the history of any nation. And there have been many books written about Israel, but our next guest has written the first and only one that focuses on the debate Israel has inspired within the United States. Eric Alterman is a CUNY distinguished professor of English and journalism. He was the liberal media columnist for The Nation for 25 years, now writes for The American Prospect. He's the author of 12 books and has been a columnist for The Guardian and Rolling Stone. You may have also read him in The New Yorker and The Atlantic. He is a former senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, winner of the George Orwell Prize, and his new book, We Are Not One, A History of America's Fight Over Israel, traces the debate in the U.S. about the fate of Israel itself, particularly following the Six-Day War in 1967. It covers how support for Israel became the primary component of some American Jews' collective identity, and of course, gets into how and why so many conservative Christians and neocon pundits have fought so hard for Israel and why they've claimed so deeply to care about it. Or have they? It's a great pleasure to welcome Professor Eric Alterman to SiriusXM. Hello, sir. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much. So you've said the United States debates a mythical version of what's going on there. Has it always been mythical? Uh, Even before 1967, you write about how after 1948, Israel wasn't really in the news very much, but Americans had a a very rosy picture of the Israel they thought they knew. Yeah. um, Originally, it was kind of a Disneyland picture of um, the Israelis who were uh, making the desert bloom in the morning, arguing philosophy at night, and then strapping on Uzis and winning wars in the evening <laughs> and going doing the same thing the next day. And uh, and it was thrilling 
the Zionist victory uh, in creating the state and then making the desert bloom was thrilling for American Jews who were feeling horrible about how little they had been able to do for European Jews in the Holocaust. And when it came in that period to either trying to help the European Jews or help the Zionists in Palestine, they almost always chose the Zionists because they were seen as the future and the European Jews were seen as the past. Mm. And so and so at the beginning of Israel, the founding of the state, American Jews were completely into it. They they loved it. And they raised more it was the biggest lobbying campaign. There are a lot of superlatives in this book. It's the biggest lobbying yeah. campaign, I think, in history. There were a lot of towns in America that sent more postcards to Congress and the president than they had people. <laughs> um, and then I'm I'm not kidding. But then, for the next 20 years or so, Israel didn't loom very large in uh, either American Jewish life or American life. People liked it. They would plant trees for it. They would occasionally uh, send their children out to collect money to help it get started. But mm -hmm. they were mostly concerned with American life and, and their own problems and concerns having to do with uh, separation of church and state. They were really into civil rights. American Jews, for the most part, were just liberals. And to be to be an American Jew meant, you know, it didn't have. It was it was kind of like being in the ACLU, you know. Mm -hmm. But 1967 changed all that. And um, I should say, by the way, that the the mythical Israel, which was there from the beginning as a myth, really got a incredible um, boost from yes. the book and movie Exodus. Yes, that's became, what I wanted to ask you about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's incredible. But Leon Uris. The author of the book, he said he wanted to write another chapter of the Bible and some megalomaniac thing to say, but he kind of succeeded. I mean, it, when I was growing up, which is a long time ago now, every family, every time I have sleepover with my friends, there would be Exodus on the show, mm -hmm. like the Bible, yeah. more than the Oh, Bible. yeah. And then the movie, it was completely fictional and anti-Arab and had these gleaming, beautiful Jews. In the movie, the, the hero was played by Paul Newman, whose father That's was right. Jewish. But in the movie, they went so far as to put Nazis on the Arab side. Uh, it's just a, I mean, it was ridiculous. And yet this was taken as, as so many movies are in America, as a kind of true history. Of course. I mean, and, much like the Ten Commandments was the first introduction to the Torah for so many Americans. Right. And, and you, you've said the image of the Israeli David fighting off the Arab Goliath, memorialized in the book and movie Exodus, was more misleading than illuminating, but it lived on as a tool for Israel supporters in the debates they faced. I mean, I how telling it is it? Today. Well, yeah, but how telling is it today. that today, today, young people, most young people, most people under 50 have never heard of the movie Exodus. I mean, it really seems like that film really made a difference for a couple of generations. Yeah, um, more than a couple, but a few. Yeah. The combination of, of the good feelings about Israel that were created in Exodus and the pride American Jews took in Exodus. Um, the Israeli government, David Ben-Gurion, the prime minister, said, you know, we can just fire our entire PR outfit and just send this movie around. Um, <laughs> and then in 1967, it's fascinating what happened. And we still, it's still kind of hard to explain entirely, but American Jews felt like there was going to be a second Holocaust. Uh, Nasser, General Nasser of Egypt, he had mm -hmm. combined Egypt and Syria into one country. And and he said a lot of nasty things about what he was going, about to do to Israel. Now, the phrase that all Jews repeated over and over that he was going to throw the Jews into the sea 
He never said. At least there's no evidence that he said. But people heard it somehow, and they heard other comments, and he said a lot of threatening things. And when Israel destroyed the Egyptian Air Force and the Egyptian Army in six days, it was like God had stepped on back into the world, just like in the Bible. Just yeah. that's how long it took God to create the world. And um, and American Jews who, uh, except for the Orthodox Jews, who still were a very small group at that point, they didn't really know what they believed. Like they, they didn't really have any strong religious beliefs at the time. Their feelings for Israel and their fear of a Holocaust and their shame again of what they had what had happened in the Holocaust all transformed their identity into strictly uh, the embracing of support for Israel and remembrance of the Holocaust to the exclusion of virtually everything else it meant to be Jewish. So all these Jewish organizations that had been working for social justice and helping old people Mm -hmm. and poor people and stuff and arguing on behalf of Jewish culture and education, they threw all that out the window and just embraced support for Israel and remembrance of the Holocaust. And I mean, it's a slight exaggeration, but only slight. Mm -hmm. And this lasted, began in 67, again, almost overnight. And you can tell stories. Uh, There were synagogues in in the Midwest that sold their buildings to send the money to Israel. That's right. To help them fight. So this lasted, this embrace of Israel and the Holocaust as the center of American Jewish identity. It's still still true for a lot of Jews, particularly Jews uh, my age and older. I'm 62, I'm afraid to say. Um, (laughs) but But it doesn't work for younger Jews anymore because, first of all, Israel was once David, but now it looks a lot more like Goliath. Mm-hmm. And um, and the Palestinians have become the underdog in the fight, number one. There's a there's a decided conflict that was Jews were able to avoid for a long time between their liberalism and their Zionism, and lately their liberalism has been winning. And second mm-hmm. of all, you know, the Holocaust is now much longer time ago. There are very, very few survivors left. When, when this was forged, people, we were talking about people's grandparents, but we no longer are. And, and also, there's been a lot of other atrocities in the world that make the Holocaust look less unique. It's still unique, but they're all unique. So, yes, but it, so when, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, please. Well, just what, as you point out, though, 1967 was how the entire American debate began to shift. And at, that really is where we can trace this increasingly liberal, increasingly right wing bent to the Israeli government a government that left the American Jews behind who have much more in common, I would argue, with the founders of, of Israel than with the, the present regime, which has led to so much yeah, further divisiveness. That actually in the debate began here. in 77. Okay. The Israelis threw out the founding, their founding fathers, the labor Zionists who were socialists and they wrote books and read books and read philosophy and, you know, worked also worked the fields. They really yes. were remarkable people. And they embraced the right wing which was supported much more by the Arab Jews and mm-hmm. by poor Jews and uh, and increase, and then religious Jews, who everybody thought the religious Jews were going to disappear, but they didn't. The, the opposite happened. And they've become increasingly more powerful in Israel. And they've also actually, in recent years, become increasingly more powerful in the United States. They're now only, a, they're still only about 10% of American Jews, but they have a lot of babies. And, and, <laughs> and secular Jews don't. I think something like 40% of the babies born, Jewish babies born in New York now are born to Orthodox families. Anyway, um, so there's been a big split in American Jews, among American Jews, 
between those Jews who want to go along with this right-wing, increasingly theocratic, increasingly illiberal Israel that loves Donald Trump and hate, hated Barack Obama and doesn't really mm-hmm. like Joe Biden, and American Jews who remain the most liberal group of all white people anyway, yeah, and um, and and have no use for this government, which by the way just had an election and and went even further to the right, which uh, is really scary in American Jews. So there's been a big split. Now about 25 percent of American Jews support Trump and the right, and about 75 percent support uh, the Democrats. And again, mm-hmm. this this was always kind of manageable. They they said. People who are on the pro-Palestinian side, they complain about what they call PEP people, which are progressive except for Palestine. Right. People didn't have to choose. But just beginning recently, they're being forced to choose. APAC, which uh, is uh, stands for the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, it used to say it didn't give money to candidates. It didn't give directly to candidates, but it, right. it made sure they got it. In this past election, for the first time, they started giving money directly to candidates. They're uh, acted, and they picked out 109 Republican insurrectionists. That's um, right. And 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 then they went around to Democratic primaries and picked the more conservative candidate in almost every one, because the left wing of the Democratic Party is turning very pro-Palestinian. So this this forces people to see the split inside the American Jewish community that has been kind of papered over now. Now, if you want to talk, I'll say one last thing, and then I'm sorry I'm talking to you. Not at all. No, no, um, please. Well, in terms of government policy, the right still rules things. Like uh, Israel support is still very strong in the Biden administration and in Congress. After the war in 2021, the short war in May of 2021, uh, Israel used its Iron Dome, which are the missiles that shoot down other missiles uh, that are shot at it, that they was jointly developed with the United States. And Congress voted to give Israel an extra billion dollars mm-hmm. to make up for the missiles it had used, even though under Barack Obama, Israel has been promised $38 billion over a period of 10 years. Again, nothing like that in any other country. Nowhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Congress decided to give Israel an extra billion on top of the $38 billion. There were only eight votes against it in out of 538 votes. One abstention. AOC abstained. Right. So, so for all the fear that has been expressed by the quote-unquote pro-Israel side about the Democratic Party um, being anti-Israel and, and Trump's crazy comments, it, it's still not really showing up politically uh, very much. It's just showing up in a few districts. Um, and that's because APAC and, and other uh, extreme right-wing Jewish organizations and, and Christian organizations define anyone who has a problem with the Israeli government and runs for office as someone who needs to be defeated. Ironically, that's exactly. a majority of American Jews. And it's becoming a majority of the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party is now split in half between pro-Palestinian and pro-Israeli, although young people are much more pro-Palestinian than they are pro-Israeli. So the future of American Jewry is about to change in a big way. It's not clear that the politics are going to change all that much, however. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This is Progress. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. 
Mm-mm-mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. My guest is Professor Eric Alterman. You you bring us right to the present moment and how we got here. Just as the American right wing has hijacked the flag and the Bible, it's hijacked Israel as well. And you talk in the book about these these wealthy donors who are always quite conservative. And you go through APAC and the American Jewish Committee and how these organizations don't actually represent the views of the American Jewish community at all. They're right wing and they're controlling where the dollars go. But the actual Jews in America... The rabbis in America are the ones without a voice. They're the ones who aren't being represented by these major uh, lobbying organizations. I blame the media in in significant measure for this because Mm -hmm. they always go to the heads of these organizations like Abe Foxman for 30 years at the ADL and now Jonathan Greenblatt and also APAC to get their quotes. They don't go to the rabbis. They don't go to the actual Jews. And so um, they, they let these people appear as spokespeople for the American Jewish community when they're, they're no such thing. As you say, they're spokespeople for their donors. Yeah. And their donors are people like the late Sheldon Adelson, who, who according to Maggie Haberman's book, he gave Trump a direct bribe. Of, he said, I'll give you $20 million if you move the embassy from Tel Aviv to yes. Jerusalem. I spoke in that building in Tel Aviv in May. It was uh, what used to be the embassy. It's kind of a sad place now. There's nothing going on there. But, um, but that's, I had a very that, small that's... audience. But that speaks to the evangelical fervor. That's what I find fascinating. You you know, you try talking to a right-wing evangelical about um, how, let's just say, the Trump administration furthers the teachings of the New Testament, and they'll say, well, he moved the base to, he moved the embassy to, to, to Jerusalem, which has nothing to do with the teachings of that particular Jewish scholar. What baffles so many people, especially so many young people, is how you can see America's right simultaneously generate this funding for Israel, be completely obedient to the leadership, the civilian leadership of Israel, accuse anyone who criticizes that civilian leadership of anti-Semitism, while at the same time, here at home, catering to anti-Semitic groups, having dog whistle rhetoric like we just saw Donald Trump do a couple of weeks ago. It is amazing that these people who support Israel so vocally are also on the same team that at least winks at this contempt for American Jewry. Well, they more than wink at it. Yeah. It, uh, you know, it looks it looks confusing, but it's not. It's not. On the one hand, for a few reasons. One is is that they hate Muslims a lot more than they hate Jews. Word. <laughs> and and Israel's, you know, kicks Muslim ass. So they mm-hmm. like that. Secondly, I had no idea. I mean, I, I'd heard about it, but until I looked into it, I had no idea the, the importance of the revelation, the book of Revelation has that's uh, it to American evangelicals and how important it is that Israel start the war that's with it. Satan that will lead to all Jews going to hell, by the way, 
Oh but, yeah, but oh, the ones who don't convert, sir. Heaven. The ones who don't. The ones. One third will convert. The rest of them will die horribly and go to hell. Right. So, so Jews are betting that this is wrong. We'll like take this. Uh, Israel saying we'll take the support now and worry about going to hell later. <laughs> um, but the other thing that people don't like to talk about very much is that Zionist ideology is anti-Semitic towards non-Israeli Jews. Zionists agree. The Israelis agree that. Uh, they like it when when Jews in America and elsewhere are attacked because they say, look, we told you you have to come to Israel. It's the only place that you're safe. And and so Bibi Netanyahu is is very cozy with anti-Semitic people yeah. like Orban in Hungary and Donald Trump. They're always rushing to defend Donald Trump. And always. because it's consistent with their ideology that there's no future for the diaspora and that the only future for Jews is in Israel. This is on the left and the right yeah. in Israel, but it's much more pronounced on the right. I just saw a a YouTube video that I had never seen before. I didn't know about. I mean, I heard about it, I guess, but I forgot. Where there was there was attacks. Remember the Charlie Hebdo attacks in Paris? Of course, yeah. Yeah. So so Bibi went to a synagogue uh, right afterwards, and he gave a speech, and he said, "Forget about France. France is over for Jews. Come That's to Israel." Right. And and the Jews stood up and they sung La Marseillaise as he had to stand there and listen to it, telling mm. him off. And, and, you know, we're we're Frenchmen as well as Jews. Um, and Americans, you know, the thing about American Zionism, another thing that the people might find surprising is that most Jews were very anti-Zionist for the first hundred or so years, or not hundred years, but Zionism was, modern Zionism was founded in 1896, 1897. And it wasn't until really the Holocaust that American Jews embraced it, until they found out about the Holocaust. Um, huh. And before that, uh, they were they were anti-Zionist because they didn't want Christians to think that they had this dual loyalty. Thing. And of it was course. only when um, Justice Brandeis, Supreme Court Justice, first Jewish Supreme Court Justice, said, well, we believe in Zionism, just not for us. We don't need it. We're happy in America. We're staying here. Everything's cool with us here. It's for people who need it. And that's and so being a Zionist makes us better Americans. And um and it's true that hardly any American Jews ever moved to Israel, 5% at the very beginning, and then after that, far less. So the idea that Israelis have that Americans should stop this nonsense and just move to Israel is never going to happen. Mm. Um, it's entirely a symbolic issue, uh, this war, this uh, law of return, as far as American Jews go. Oh, yeah. and, yet, and yet Israeli Jews are always telling American Jews that they're not really good Jews. That to be a good Jew, you have to live in Israel, and you're probably going to disappear either through assimilation or anti-Semitism, and and so that's why it's true, and that's no, it's, why I know, yeah, and and that's why they're they 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 like it when it looks like when things look bad for American Jews, and they like it when these Republican politicians uh, wink at anti-Semitism or use anti-Semitic dog that's whistles, right. because uh, number one, these guys support Israel because of their evangelical base and because of the Republican funders. Exactly. And B, it's consistent with their beliefs. So the the I was unaware of the contempt that Israel has shown American Jews until I read this book. So when Netanyahu, Netanyahu and what Trump said is exactly the same thing Netanyahu says, which is that, that American Christians, Christian evangelicals, are mm -hmm. better friends to Israel than American Jews. And if American Jews don't like Israel, well, that, that's tough luck. That's not their problem. It, it's just amazing when you consider how the same fundamentalism that has taken over so much of public Judaism in Israel's government 
hasn't happened in America. The fundamentalist Christians have taken over what passes for Christianity here, while the American Jews have the, the, the I guess, the, the independence that uh, I so wish the Christians could have. But w- one of the most heartbreaking parts of your book that you cover is the price that's paid by these presidents who have tried, tried to bring some kind of reform, some kind of two-state solution without even calling it that. Jimmy Carter and and Bush Sr. and Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, and how repeatedly these presidents who try so hard and put their reputations on the line to try to bring about some end to the conflict, they always seem to be a bit worse for wear when it's done. It just seems like there's a historical discouraging factor for presidents who want to try to bring about a peaceful solution. Yeah, well, the American Jewish organizations... They don't really like peace very much because then they they're, don't get to defend Israel. They're, they're wartime consigliaries. I mean, but you could make the same argument about some of our friends in Hamas as well. If peace happened, a lot of these leaders would be out of a job, both on Netanyahu's yeah, side and Hamas's side. You're not going to get side. me on the record saying American Jewish leaders are like Hamas. Oh, um, no, no, not American Jewish leaders. No, 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 no. I'm just saying not American Jewish leaders. I'm saying wartime consigliaries, guys whose position in power in Hamas or in, in uh, the Netanyahu government depends on the conflict continuing. Well, hawks, hawks always love each other. You know, in yeah. the Cold War, the hawks love each other. But the American Jewish community has always been incredibly ungrateful to those American presidents who have tried to help Israel make peace. Jimmy Carter is the best example of this. Jimmy Carter did more for Israeli security than any president since Harry Truman, who recognized the founding of the state. He took, Israel, he took Egypt off the table as a threat to Israel. That has yeah. allowed Israel to do what it wants. Otherwise, because it doesn't have to worry about a real war. There's no Mm -hmm. combination of Arab countries that can threaten Israel. You know, Iran may have a bomb someday, but right now there's no threat. There's just a nuisance threat, you know, killing people on occasion, which, of course, is terrible, but it's not a threat to the existence of the state. Right. But they hated Carter because Carter forced Israel to make, helped Israel make, he didn't force them, but he encouraged them to make concessions even though those concessions were an incredible bargain for Israel. They hated George W. Bush. By the way, both of these, H.W. Bush, by the way, both of these guys did not get reelected in part right. for this reason. Clinton, they actually liked. They, they, they were okay with Clinton. He took Israel's side when Bush came to shove. Um, he blamed Arafat for all of the failures of uh, his attempt to make peace. So they didn't, they didn't mind Clinton. Mm-hmm. Obama, they didn't like at all. They didn't trust him. But by this time, they had the see the American because of what I said earlier that American Jews are uh, are liberals and very unhappy with the direction that Israel has taken, and Israeli Jews are very right wing and they hated Obama and they liked Trump. And these leaders of these organizations had to choose, and they've without almost without exception have chosen Israel over American Jews. They 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 argue that that the Israeli position is uh, unassailable. When um, the head of APAC was asked in the past month, I don't, I don't know if I got this in the book or not. I think I did. Yeah, I think I got it like the last day. Mm-hmm. He was asked, is there anything that an American politician who supported Israel could do that would lose the support of APAC? He said, no, he couldn't think of anything. Now, there are other organizations now, J Street being the most prominent, and a few others. I, I like this group a lot, Trua, which is made up of uh, American rabbis, mm-hmm. that, um, that oppose openly opposed Israel's uh, actions. The reform movement in America, the head of the reform movement recently just had a very strong statement about Israel's government. But uh, to tell you the truth, even 
This is complicated, too. Even American Jews who don't like what Israel does and thinks they treat the Palestinians terribly and wish they would behave better, they don't like to criticize it uh, in public. They don't like to go too far out on a limb because they're worried about, well, what if they're wrong? Whereas if the other guys are wrong, okay, so a bunch of Arabs could kill them. But if they're wrong and Israel somehow suffers, the weight of the Holocaust and of Jewish history is so powerful on their shoulders that they don't, they'd rather take the, the other risk that Israel becomes an illiberal, semi-fascist country, which it isn't yet, but it, it's on the way if things keep going that way, the same way the United States was until the last election and still may be. So even though they feel what Israel's doing, there's a story I tell at the beginning of the, of the book, I mean, the beginning of the Obama chapter, which I think is very telling. So Obama, he sends his uh, aide, Ben Rhodes, to go see this congressman. Mm-hmm. to get him to help Obama, who wants a freeze on Israeli settlement. And Ben Rhodes comes back and says to Obama, we're not getting it from this guy. Doesn't name the congressman. And I said, wait, I thought he was against the settlement. And Ben Rhodes says, yeah, he is, but he's more against doing anything about the settlement. <laughs> and, 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 then I, and I say, this was the congressman's position at the beginning of the, of the Obama administration, but it was Obama's position by the end of the Obama administration. Um, and that's the power of the conservative Yep. Christians and the and the right wing Jewish organizations, and and, and every, that doesn't seem to me to be going anywhere. No, well, uh, except soon. except if ever there's been a book that that traces how we got to this point and what the future might lead, especially among young American Jews who uh, are have even greater disaffection for policy involving Israel in the U.S. This book is just fascinating and gripping and alternately inspiring and terrifying. Um, The book is We Are Not One, A History of America's Fight Over Israel. Eric Alterman, I could talk about this with you for days. Please come back and and let's go even deeper when it comes in paperback because there's so much I didn't even get to. This is quite a fascinating book and I thank you so much for joining us. Love to. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Bye-bye. We'll be right back. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. November is Native American Heritage Month. And as you all know, we have a lot of First Nations guests on the show, authors and activists and wellness folk. And when I first heard about our guest's new book, I was so intrigued. Chelsea Luger and Tosh Collins are the founders of Well for Culture, which is an indigenous wellness initiative. And they've done this to forge a a whole new era in wellness geared towards First Nations peoples and offering a new approach to well-being. But it turns out these kind of holistic philosophies go both ways. And their new book is all about how to live a good, healthy life, but rooted 
in Indigenous Ancestral Knowledge. The book is The Seven Circles, Indigenous Teachings for Living Well. And it's a book that is really all about how to still be true to who you are, but to do it by connecting with nature, with our communities, with ourselves, and how to integrate ancient indigenous philosophies of health and well-being into our own lives. It is a really, really inspiring and cool new book that well, let's be honest. We live in an age when health and wellness in this country means a lot of big pharmaceutical companies trying to sell you pills. Oh, the pill has a side effect? Well, here's a pill for that. Here's a pill for the side effect for the pill you're taking a side effect for. This is a book that takes us out of the capitalism rat race of wellness and into First Nations territory to learn what real wellness can mean. It is a great pleasure to welcome a husband and wife author team, Chelsea Luger and Thosh Collins. Hello. Thanks, John. We're we're honored to hear your insights from the book. And um, my name is Thosh Collins, and I am I'm just here representing behalf of myself, my wife Chelsea Luger, who is uh, we are co-authors of our book Seven Circles: Indigenous Teachings for Living Well. So, thanks for having us. Thank you. I, I know your wife is tucking the kids into bed right now. I just tucked mine in during the commercial break. And um, I really admired her appearance on Good Morning America. I thought it was so inspiring. L let me ask, how, how until she can join us, how did this particular project come about? How, how did the two of you decide to take what you both learned individually and pay it forward and, and create this book, which is not marketed towards indigenous people. It's taking the best parts of the culture and sharing it for a healthier America and a healthier world. Absolutely. Well, you know, the start to start off the concept of of our ways as indigenous people can be shared appropriately with non-indigenous people to help the world to foster a a way of life that's thriving that's not a new notion i've i've heard that a lot growing up as a youth in my community so what got us started on this path both chelsea and i were, were raised in our respective indigenous communities she was raised um, between her two of her communities in north dakota the standing rock sioux nation as well as the turtle mountain chippewa people myself raised on the salt river people a small reservation right outside of phoenix arizona and raised in our communities, brought up in our teachings. Uh, both of us had also lived in the cities going to college. And so we got a really uh, a taste of, of what it's like to live in the world, but, but, but to live by our views and our ways as indigenous people. So when we first got together, it was about 2013 and we started to just create media on social media, having to do with showing a healthy way of life, representing native people to really inspire our people. And at the time, there was nobody on social media talking about indigenous health and wellness. The movement was That's happening. Right. The, right. Yes, the movement was happening in native countries, started really started in the 60s. And I was raised in the native wellness movement as a youth attending some of the gatherings. So um, and I sit on the board of the Native Wellness Institute. They've been doing wellness work in native country for about 20 plus years. And so mine, Chelsea's contribution to the growing wellness movement was to really pull together a lot of what we have learned based on our lived experience from our teachings, but also what we're seeing outside of our cultures, you know, seeing these the, the modern fitness movement and, and how it's evolving. And, you know, we were participants in that, but we started to attach the teachings that we learned, you know, from our knowledge keepers and oral traditionalists, uh, traditionalists in our communities, put these together going forward to create, you know, um, what we later on found out that there's seven circles, right? The seven ways. And we created that model in 2018 after traveling native country for a few years, working in indigenous communities, first nations, communities, the United States and Canada. Uh, we are traveling to different places, doing a workshops and, and working with their various indigenous wellness departments and such working with their communities, 
But then in 2018, we said, we need to simplify and make something more cohesive. And let's look at a circular model based on the model that's very prevalent in amongst many Native uh, communities, particularly in the Plains, which is the right. spiritual, physical, mental, and emotional wellness of yes, medicine. Yes. Yeah. And so, you know, we thought too, we thought about it like, well, what were the aspects in pre-colonial indigenous life that allowed our people to thrive and live in good health? So we thought about based on what we learned from oral tradition, even what we've what we've learned from, you know, some historians and, and historic written accounts. And it, it seemed that it was very prevalent and very obvious that our people had food ways. So there's food is one. Two is our people had revered the sleep in the nighttime. We had a spiritual reverence really for all these circles. Spirituality is right. present in all the circles. But the nighttime, uh, sleep time was one that our people across all nations had teachings about. And of course, movement. Yes. We all had indigenous movement, lacrosse being the most popular one. That's the biggest contribution from indigenous people to the world. That's true. And then sacred space. Yes. Sacred space, our homes, our offices, our work, those contribute to how well we are. These spaces that we spend time in, that we live in, that we learn in, that we love in. And then also our connection to a ceremony, ceremony to honor things, to ceremony That's for it. healing. Yeah. And then connection to land, which is really ubiquitous across all indigenous people. It's it's inherent, the connection to land. That's why in our languages, there's no word for nature because it's present in, in everything. And then our connections to community, the people that are around us that contribute to our wellness. So, you know, that's just in a nutshell, seven circles and, and how we came up with that. I love it. I And I love the book. I have to say, I as someone who's been blessed to have First Nations people in my life, and to have learned about the culture and learned from the cultures, it's amazing to me how much non-Indigenous people could benefit, not just health and exercise-wise, but spiritually benefit from these kinds of cultures. I mean, the first time I really understood what smudging entailed and what the process that goes into smudging, the simple ritual, I mean, to me, it, it combined all the best and healthiest elements of prayer and all the best elements of meditation. It was sort of a way of talking to God or the universe while letting God and the universe talk to you at the same time. And again, that's one of the things about religion across the board that works for people is the the ritual. But this is so much deeper and it is so much more spiritual rather than a rigid set of dogma demanding you obey. Absolutely. I'd love to ask about some of the seven circles because to me, this this holistic model for modern living you have here is something that is incredibly accessible and I, I think is the sort of thing that families and individuals alone could benefit from. And it's it's mostly really simple. Let, let, let me start by talking about movement. That is one of your circles. What does it mean to try to create an earth gym? I, I love that expression and I love the mentality behind it. Yeah, so earth gym is, is something that we started doing intentionally. I myself have been practicing for the past several years where instead of going into the gym to go about our, our fitness and movement session, we, we take it out on the land. And for me, when I first started doing that, that was just something that I didn't really think about. I would just started going out, well, let's go out and use some rocks. Let's use, let's use some cliffs because we had heard a lot of teachings too. Um, in my community growing up, we heard a lot about how they would train with, with uh, rocks or they would train uphill. They do all sorts of special things. And 
Um, I traveled around different native communities and where they still had these, they still have these practices. They still, they still have these as races. They still have these as competitions. And, and so there was an elder from um, our, our, our native wellness Institute, uh, Mr. Charles Tellfeathers. And he, he was a carrier, a knowledge carrier of, of these games. And, and so I was really inspired by that. And then so I started just kind of, you know, taking it out outside to, to, take a break from the gym and get out of the cold steel environment of the gym and get out on the land where our ancestors as native people have walked for thousands of years, where we could experience this rough terrain and, and really challenge yourself and challenge your mental, emotional grit. And, you know, when you get out on the land, there's no even surfaces or soft hand handles, right? So when you get out there and you take out your, you take your exercise out on the land using rocks, using logs, inclines, sprints, cliffs to pull up on or whatever, um, even if it's just doing movement outside and you're, you're doing it in a, in a mindful way where you are right. doing this intentionally to be on the land because we're trying to reconfigure ourselves. We're trying to align again with the land and get, get comfortable with the land and not seeing the land as something separate from us that, you know, exactly. but just being in and changing the mindset where it's more of a priority to your health, to be out. You're intentional about going outside and exactly. it's a regularly occurring thing. And then we start to open up our minds, start to expand and we start to see, see movement differently. And then when we take it out on the land there, again, we're, we're really training ourselves for more, a real world practical application in a sense. So we just started calling Earth Gym, you know. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And, and what I like the most about it is that it doesn't necessarily mean you have to live in a rural area or a suburb to have this kind of movement practice be outdoors to, to live in an Earth Gym. This is very applicable for people who live in cities. And as someone who lives in a city, I'm, I'm very fond of talking about how people who live in big cities are as in touch with nature or more so than folks who live in rural areas. People who don't own cars are often very very much more in touch with nature than people who do. And I, I loved it. I am curious, though, you talk in the chapter about incorporating the powwow mentality into your movement. And I love where you go with that. Can you explain what that means to incorporate the powwow mentality? Yeah, you know, in in a lot of our native communities, um, powwow is a, is a social dance. It's a, it's a celebration, and a lot of powwows are public, and anyone can join, and anyone can go and watch and and, and, and spectate. And the powwow announcer always always makes uh, statements where he says, when the people come out there to do, uh, you know, come out to dance, they say, "Dance for your relatives that can't dance. Dance for your relatives who can't walk." They say run for your relatives who can't run. That's where we heard a lot when I was younger because we historically come from running people in my community. We still run for yes. causes in our community. And they told us that then, too. They say, think about those that are not fortunate and, and get out and, and, and dance for the people. And I think that when you start to bring in that sort of mindset, when you think about when you think about you know, this concept of, of doing that and, and, and not taking your body for granted and mm -hmm. and Seeing, seeing movement and dance as a as a celebration for your physical self and celebrating what health you have. I think when you attach these new or not new, but when you attach this different um, perspective in there, it really shifts our our thinking and it makes us look at movement differently and it helps us to see that we are connected to so much more than I just agree. ourselves. 
So it's it's really elevating the consciousness about movement and it's taking it sort of, you know, you can it's it's sort of taking it away from let's instead of moving because we want to look a certain way because of aesthetics, maybe we're moving for a bigger cause. You know, you're also moving for your general health and wellness so you can be there for your family, so you can be there for your community, so you can be well, so you can have longevity. So that's sort of what we we called it the power mentality because that's that's what they talk a lot. It was very prevalent in powwow where they say dance yeah. for those that cannot dance. So we encourage people to adopt that mindset, you know, when they approach their movement practice and they don't have to call it that, but it can happen inside the mind. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This is progress. Okay. Picture this. It's Friday afternoon. When a thought hits you, I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. My guest is Tosh Collins. The book is The Seven Circles, Indigenous Teachings for Living Well. So what I love is that so many of these elements you discuss, so many of these seven circles you discuss are, of course, the things that the average, you know, confused white person can make the association for, for indigenous cultures. Yeah, food. OK, I get it. Movement, ceremony, sacred space. But what about sleep? I really love your commentary on sleep. And I do think that um, people could take a page out of uh, the indigenous book about how to respect sleep and approach sleep in a very different way than Western culture encourages us to approach sleep. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that now in like, in like, in natural medicine or functional medicine, there's, there's been a lot of discussion and a lot of new evidence emerging about sleep and the importance of sleep and its, its importance in hormone regulation and its importance in, in neuroplasticity it's yes. importance in your immune system and and your ability to tolerate stress, your insulin sensitivity. You know they're finding out all this new evidence in the past decade. You know, but when I also think about from a lot of elders that I would hear a lot talk about um, in my community, they would encourage us to sleep and they would discourage us from staying up all night. Um, being on devices is when the video games were starting to become pre uh, prevalent, uh, right? And mm -hmm. like the nineties, you know, I heard that a lot and they didn't know the evidence, but a lot of our spiritual leaders knew something out of the device there is not going to be good for our people. And they discouraged that. Now we know about, you know, addiction to devices. We know about blue light, um, you know, exposure yeah. and, and, and all that. And so, you know, and we also ask a lot of, you know, ask my dad, he was raised by his grandparents, you know, when did your grandma and grandpa, when did they sleep? When did they wake? And he said, they always woke and slept with the sun and, and, and sunsets. They were always up before sunrise and they always had gave thanks for the day. And when the sun was down, they were inside and in, and it probably in a not very, not very far back. Many people didn't have electricity, especially on our reservation. So they had no choice. Once you were inside, you were inside for the night and they were asleep. And because they knew 
the next day required all of their energy. And so there's, they talked a lot about to sleep well and to go into the dream state and to, and to welcome the dream world and to, you know, be, be able to rest, but allow your spirit to do things and be recovered and ready for the day because their lives had depended upon it, you know? So there's a lot of different things to take into account when it looks at sleep, we look at oral tradition and we look at science. And I believe that that's where they sort of emerge and they complement one another. Yeah. What, what, what's, uh, what do you mean by electronic sundown? So that's also a phrase that's kind of been around a little bit. And what that, what that teaches is that, you know, because we're trying to realign circadian rhythm, right? Circadian rhythm. Right. If we are sleeping and waking at the same time every day, if you're eating at the same time, you're exercising or meditating at the same time, then that, that helps to, to strengthen our circadian rhythm. That helps to really get us on a good path and a good regimen. Um, and we start to experience a lot, a lot of positive benefit for that. But electronic sundown, what that does is that, is that once the sun is down, then we start dimming a lot of our devices and our lights. Mm -hmm. So that way our brain knows, because I guess what the new evidence is showing is that the electronic devices or any form of, of light on the spectrum, it, what that does is that can hinder uh, the secretion of melatonin, which is a hormone that helps us to prepare for sleep. And so this is where we kind of, again, we're pulling together a lot of what recent scientific evidence is what I shown. love. It's so, so much of these teachings are backed up by modern science. It's so great. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, electronic sundown is just starting to really minimize your usage of devices and you start to dim the lights because you're preparing yourself for sleep. If, if the sun goes down and we say, Oh, let's hit the lights, let's turn on the lights. Let's have the, the, the screen TV going. Let's have the, you know, the, the laptop and I'm on my phone. We're just, you know, we're just mm -hmm. overexposing ourselves to blue light and this electronic devices. And not to mention, you know, the addiction to devices as well can also be a hindrance yeah. on our overall uh, well-being. Absolutely. One thing I loved in the chapter on sleep is you talk about something that I think is great for anybody's wellness or health or anyone struggling with depression or anyone who is going through recovery. Um, and that is the importance of a gratitude ritual before bed which to me is so much like what prayer is supposed to be, I think, rather than rather than a prayer where you're asking a deity for a lot of stuff you want, rather right. to have a, a structured gra gratitude ritual at the end of the day, every day. Can you please uh, share some of that with us? Yeah, and, I, and that's something that's been, that's really prevalent in a, in a lot of our indigenous cultures. Um, as Native people are, are forms of, of I, I like to call it spiritual acknowledgments. Because if we say prayer, it's got this religious context. Too. Some of us will use that term prayer, but they're not using it in, in the same religious context. It's because we're using, we're using a European language to talk about things of our culture and that we use words in different contexts sometimes. So when Native people, historically, when we did spiritual acknowledgement, acknowledgements or giving of thanks, giving of thanks, that's where the whole Thanksgiving thing comes from. You know, the Haudenosaunee, the Iroquois Confederacy, the Six Nations had did, did what they call a Thanksgiving address, which wasn't once a year. It was actually before every large uh, gathering that the people would do mm -hmm. seasonally. But and that's in English language and it translates over. That's what it sort of talks about is giving of thanks. We're, we're acknowledging all of the elements in our life that contribute to our life today were the elements i should rephrase in our world that contribute to our well-being such as we honor water we honor the sunlight the earth we honor uh, grandfather fire 
We honor um, the four-legged, the the winged, the finned. We honor all the plant nations. We honor all of the people in our extended family. Uh, we we honor the the great source of spiritual energy that is in all things. And so that's what that is. It's it's honoring all these things that we can witness on a daily basis. We can witness and see these things. And sometimes we take it for granted because people are, I guess, are expecting something more mysterious. Of course. But what we as native people, yeah, as native people, we give thanks that we witness that contribute life every day, the air we breathe. We acknowledge all those things. So so you know, this is something too we do in our in our household. Um I, I put my our we have two two daughters. We have a two-year-old and a five-year-old and i put the oldest one to bed and um and we lay down and that's what we do we give thanks we go down the list and we give thanks to things we use our language and you know loft, oftentimes she falls asleep to it but what happens it's important for people to of all i think all walks of life to to give thanks for what you experience today and what you experience in your life in general if you do that on a daily basis what that does is that had that even has neurological changes in the brain and that helps us to see the more positive aspects of our life and focus on those. And I think that that's a big contributor to our overall feelings of, of happiness, of seeing the positive side of things. And, and it can fight anxiety, it can fight depression. It can fight chronic negative thinking, which is all symptoms of yeah, trauma. Exactly. Exactly. My guest, by the way, is uh, Thosh Collins. He is the co-author of the excellent new book, The Seven Circles, Indigenous Teachings for Living Well. And since you mentioned trauma, one of the things I most respect about the book is y'all don't shy away from discussing the impact of, of colonialism and what was done to indigenous peoples. Y'all don't shy away from the, talking about the ethnic cleansing that plagued this land and how much uh, First Nations people have suffered for over a century because of it. And yet it's all about, hey, you think you've had trauma. Listen to what we've had. And from that pain comes these beautiful stories about transcending the trauma, transcending the pain, transcending the historic suffering and, and humiliation and, and really focusing on how many revitalized cultures exist within this non-monolithic world of, of indigenous people and, and to say nothing of the, the food ways and the spiritual practices. I mean, it really is a book that is very positive without ever turning a blind eye to the brutality that we've all known this country is known for. Yes. And, you know, we're so glad to hear that that's been a lot of people's takeaway in the non-native community. We're really happy that people are that's resonating with people in a good way because, you know, our intention is to really share true history, share our true history to share where we have been, but not focusing on our trauma and grief. And we focus on the, 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 the thriving aspects that still exist within our people. And they have never left regardless of the intentional, you know, a, a genocide that was, that was attempted upon our people, the encroachment of our original territories, you know, the, being pushed onto reservations and, you know, uh, the boarding school era and attempt to acculturate us. And, you know, we honor all that. We acknowledge all that. And we think that it's important for people living in these Western developed countries, such as the United States and Canada to, again, hear the, hear their history from our perspective. And this is what we've been through and how we've been able to be well and to continue to thrive is because of the teaching our ancestors it's the teachings of our ancestors and you know we we feel as native people like i said it's been a notion 
for decades now of Native people to share certain aspects with the world because we yes. believe we watch it. When I see as a Native person being raised in my community, being raised in the worldview of my people, but going into dominant society and having to participate. And as I get older and as I become a parent and as I become actively act politically active in both U.S. and tribal government, I look in and I, I peek into dominant culture. We we sort of, you know, take pity upon what's happening. And we watch that so many people in dominant society are something different. Maybe yeah. mainstream politics West hasn't provided enough people for robust answers for some people and we feel that there's a way that maybe they can be reconnect to the basics of of all aspects of a world that contribute to life and it's nothing mysterious and woo woo it's all and so we share in the book with people from all walks of life how they can reconnect to the things that matter their community the land that they're living upon connect to their food mindfully and connect to their body in a different way than what dominant culture so that's our con- our yeah. contribution but for me pe- peering into what's happening right now in the social political in the recent years peeking into it you know a dominant society um you know this is something i think that we've we we grow increasingly concerned about you know things and we feel as native people we might be able to contribute something absolutely and and as white people we might be able to learn something and that's why it's so wonderful because it just takes so many parts of the culture that i think a lot of uh, gringos would be too embarrassed to ask about and all this beauty and all these practical ways for living a richer life in fact before i let you go i i, I want to ask about one more of your circles and that is um the home as a sacred space there is so much that can be learned from this that is so positive for mental and emotional well-being what do you mean when you talk about emphasizing the power of a, a light-filled minimalist home yeah you know we think back to again everything always there's a historical reference there's the a traditional reference to everything that we share about and going back to our histories as native people and this is again one thing that we heard a lot of our elders talk about they remind us when we are growing up that you know not to own too much things not to have too many things because it would be a burden on you and you know you fast forward to today and you you kind of you know people kind of understand that from a modern perspective but our people live the very beautifully minimal lives and they live very simple in a way and there's a lot of teachings that can be taken away and adopted into this 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 uh, certain modern type of living and we try to follow that in our home but if we look at the places we spend a lot of time as as i mentioned the places that we live and love is that we learn in the places that we work in and the places that we transport in these all these spaces they contribute to how well we are feeling whether it's cluttered whether there there is so much artificial light whether there is enough uh, light and and how we might have nearby inspire us when we are there or is the place cluttered these places right. all contribute to our, our our feelings of of groundedness feelings general wellness right and so we share about that in the book and uh, we talk about uh, bringing sunlight into the house and sunlight, especially us as desert people, where I come from on the Anakamir to Autumn, the Sarva people. We talk a lot about the sunlight in our, our ceremonial ways, and it's a big part of our culture. And so we were always told to live a home where there's lots of sunlight would come in That's there right. because that helps you feel better. And now there's a lot of evidence to you know how we absorb uh, you know vitamin D and such through uh, through our skin from the sunlight and 
And, mm-hmm. and, and there's so much more going on there with our neurotransmitters and serotonin because of sunlight exposure and all that. So, yeah. Decluttering and leave a lot of open space. It is such a pleasure to have you on the show and to speak about this book. I really love your book. Uh, Thosh Collins is the co-author, along with his wife, Chelsea Luger. The book is The Seven Circles, Indigenous Teachings for Living Well. I am telling you, this makes a great gift. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us and for sharing this wisdom and this love and this history. It's really a pleasure. Thanks for having us uh, on behalf of both myself and my wife, Chelsea. Thank you. And um, it's such a, it's, it's so, it's great to hear these aspects resonated with you so much. So thank, thank you so much. much. Honored. Thanks much. for having us. We'd love to have you all back anytime. Thank you. <laughs>